Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, editor of Agents of Change and senior editor at Environmental Health News. Today I am talking to Idalmis Vaquero, a senior policy analyst at Just Solutions, a BIPOC-led national climate organization that partners with communities disproportionately impacted by climate change. We talk about her upbringing in an environmental justice community, how it led her to law school, and how Just Solutions works to turn community priorities into policies. Enjoy. All right. I am super excited to be joined by Idalmis Vaquero. Idalmis, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. And where are you today? I'm located in Los Angeles um, on Tongva lands. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. It's so great to have you here. In researching your uh, organization and your work, I was uh, I was very excited about this. So, so thanks again for making time. And before we get into some of that work uh, with Just Solutions, I know you had firsthand experience with environmental injustice in your childhood, um, going way back. So can you talk about growing up in the Boyle Heights neighborhood in Los Angeles and how that impacted what you ended up doing for a living? Yeah, of course. I'm always proud to say that I'm from Boyle Heights. Um, it's a Latina immigrant community filled with so much great food and community. Um, and But one of the things that I think not a lot of people know about me is that I also grew up in public housing. And um, the public housing project that I um, lived in and grew up uh, is located within walking distance um, to the city of Vernon, which is an area densely packed with some of the most polluting industries, um, and including in rent, animal rendering facility, truck depots, warehousing, and several brown brownfields. And as a high schooler, I would train for marathons um, and see a lot of the trucks often and often get headaches from like the hideous smells coming from the rendering facility uh, without at all really knowing that this meant or this was called environmental racism. And I learned about these issues as an undergrad, um, and I, that's when I actually gathered the language and knew what um, environmental racism meant. Um, and I wanted to highlight um, public housing because of too, of, uh, too often public housing is placed on cheap land formerly and sometimes currently contaminated. And for the most part, families, including my own, didn't know that our homes uh, were contaminated or we were living on toxic lands. And so um, I just I just wanted to highlight that because it's something I, um, even in my current role right now, um, I continue to learn so much about the impacts of um, in the environmental injustices of public housing and I encourage folks to actually look up uh, Poisonous Homes, which is a report by the Shriver Center on Property Law, because it, it was one of those moments of like, aha, I understand like, you know, what the, the impacts were um, and how often uh, public housing is also placed right next to some of these polluting industries. So um, just just wanted to highlight that. For sure. And we have, um, I will add some links. We have written 
pretty extensively about kind of the housing environmental justice nexus. So thank, thank you so much for bringing that up. And I don't want to brush past all of that super great context, but somewhere in there, you mentioned marathons. Did you ever, did you ever, did you do one? Did, were you able to finish one? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was actually a very, um, or I still am a very avid like runner. Um, I ran six marathons, um, LA, Holy. LA marathons. <laughs> six. Um, yeah. That is incredible. Well, I don't know when these took place, but regardless when they took place, a big congratulations because I have done some half marathons and I have done some 100, 150 mile bike rides um, and I cannot get my head around the full marathon. So anybody who does it, I give a lot of kudos to. Thank you. (laughs) For sure. So I know you also did uh, kind of along your path to Just Solutions, you did some organizing work at Communities for a Better Environment. So I'm curious what you were working on and what did you find worked in motivating young people to get engaged on these environmental justice issues? Yeah. So I think once I learned about the environmental injustices happening in my community, I wanted to find a way to connect all of what I was learning in the classroom with um, things happening um, in real time in my community. And so that's how I learned about communities for a better environment as an undergrad and, and started to get involved with like the youth organizing there. And so it was actually during my, some of my initial days at CBE that I learned about Exide. Um, and that really propelled me to <laughs> just dive deep into environmental justice work. Um, so for folks who may not know, Exide uh, was a battery facility, processing facility in the city of Vernon. Um, it, polluted so much lead into our communities. Um, And some say it's about like 7 billion pounds of lead over its 30 course, um, 30 year um, life. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was one of the big like defining moments of my um, childhood. I would still say maybe teenhood um, growing up. And, um, you know, as, as many folks may know, lead is a toxic and and potent neurotoxin um, that affects a a child's brain and development. And so for me, that um, was something I just learned about and ran with it because I couldn't quite understand how a lot of our our state agencies and air regulators in in our region were allowing such a toxic facility um, to continue breaking environmental laws. And so um, that really... Uh, gave me the the tools and the, all this anger of and desperation into or, organizing youth and door knocking in my neighborhood and teaching other youth about Exide. Um, it, yeah. So in terms of what motivates young people, I think it's helping them realize that they do have political power. I think um, off to off, a lot of youth I work with uh, were not yet 18 or not eligible to vote due to documentation status. So folks may not think that they have the political power, but at CBE, I learned that through leadership training and capacity capacity building, um, it was the first time a lot of youth saw themselves as having power, um, maybe not voting power, but other ways and political power, um, organizing power. So they were very motivated to go to public hearings and stand up and give public comments. And so that, to me, is one of the things I see um, that motivates young people is just having, allowing them to realize their full potential as as um, members of our like society. And even if they're not 18, they can still do other things that um, allow them to have a voice. 
And that Exide plant is um, is one of the kind of poster children for environmental justice. I, I'm hoping hoping listeners have heard of that before. And I've always thought of lead as a, a really powerful example of environmental injustice because lead impacts the brain, um, which impacts your ability to get an education, to get proper employment, and then it affects your earning potential and your ability to get healthcare. So it's just really ugly spiraling cycle in a lot of neighborhoods. I'm from Michigan and um, my parents are now just north of Flint. And of course there was the lead water crisis there. So I think lead is a really potent example of injustice. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, brought up that example where you were at. So, uh, Idalmis, before we get on to some of your work with Just Solutions, I've been asking everybody for years now, um, what is a defining moment or event that shaped your identity? Yeah, I think um, to me it was learning about Exide, but also now in my professional career, um, I think it's been working w- alongside community members and understanding the real struggle that um, environmental, you know, the faces of environmental justice. Um, And I think for me that one of those uh, particular moments was uh, during my work at Communities for a Better Environment when I was, um, so I was in an audience uh, of a board meeting for the California Board of Environmental Safety, which if folks may not know is um, a new governing board for the Department of Toxic Substances Control, which was actually, the agency that allowed Excite to continue to operate without um, any real um, penalties or, or um, allowing them to just, you know, rack up violations. And so um, I was at a board meeting, uh, you know, earlier this year, and um, I started to, li- I was, it was a public comment period, and um, I saw a lady get up from, it was her turn to speak, and she was a, she spoke about how her home was getting cleaned up, um, but her and her son with disabilities um, and respiratory complications had to shelter indoors while the remediation was actually happening outside her door, and, and um, she just like talked about how uh, she had to close all the doors and windows during a very hot summer um, and uh, all because she wasn't told about the free relocation options that she had. Um, and so uh, this woman like reminded me of my own mother because she was a Spanish speaker um, and a working mother who um, actually had to take time out of her day at work to come to a public meeting at 3 p.m. Um, so I just like, you know, it really highlighted to me the um, not only the lack of um, of work that our agencies do to um, make sure that uh, meetings are accessible, but they are actually meeting the needs of our communities by telling them about the free resources they have. And so um, I, 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 approached her right after she finished uh, speaking and um, helped her navigate the situation. So at at the end of the day, like she was able to get uh, relocated to a hotel for free, which was paid by because of uh, all the work we've been doing. Um, And it was, again, like a defining moment for me, because even though the woman didn't quite understand the environmental lingo or... um, you know, didn't know. She she told me she was afraid of public speaking. Um, she stood in front of the board and really, um, really because her children, her ch- child's health depended on it. And her bravery really inspires me to this day. Um, it just comes to show that community 
are the experts of their lived experiences and they matter and should be elevated in the work that we all do. Totally. I really appreciate that example. And, and it speaks to the, the work, even when agencies are doing something that's good and healthy for communities, if that message isn't getting through, um, then what good, then what good is it? We, we just had a, uh, we have a reporter in the Gulf Coast who wrote about, um, who actually made a video about uh, language justice and how there's a large mm-hmm. Spanish speaking community down there that does not know when these air monitors are saying there's bad things in the air. So I, I really appreciate that example. Um, and I wanted to take one step back before your work at Just Solutions and ask you, we have so many people on this podcast who are in this space, and so very few of them are on the legal side of things. So how did you decide to go to law school? So growing up, I was always like a translator um, for my family and translating you know, legal documents or documents just in English. Like that, that was part of my job. And so for me, I felt like law school was another opportunity for me to do that and at a broader scale um, to translate what some of these environmental laws were doing to my community um, and why they weren't actually protecting us. So um, that was in part one of the reasons why I decided to go to law school. I was like, I'm a big nerd. Maybe I can (laughs) dig into some of these issues um, and understand them better. So. Um, yeah, now I, I, you know, I think the laws are very narrow and they can they can only protect communities, you know, when a facility is violating a per, their permit um, or, uh, you know, when um, it's under a certain limit. And so I really I really feel like the laws aren't quite a, structured or written to protect environmental communities, I mean, environmental justice communities and the health of communities. So. No, that's great. And I and I think um, first I ask you that question, not because I, I think it's an odd choice, but because we don't have a lot of people on and law and, and people working in the legal space. It's so crucial for, mm-hmm. for any kind of movement in the justice space, because as you said, you mentioned the mother who, who had who had to come at three o'clock to a meeting. Imagine that same mother or or any of us really trying to go through these these documents from agencies and the EPA and make sense of how they are supposed to protect us. Um, I'm a reporter. I've been writing about the environment for nearly 15 years and the documents are foreign to me often. So, um, so thank you for playing that, that, that role of, of middle person and working to explain this to some of us. So let's talk about your work at Just Solutions. So what are some of the key federal policies that you all are engaged on right now? Yeah, so we're very focused on the implementation of some of the key programs uh, getting developed as as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, And this includes the development of um, one of the biggest buckets of funding in the IRA, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, and uh, which would help build our clean clean grid infrastructure. Uh, we also work on disaster recovery and resiliency projects. Um, and uh, another p- big piece of our work so far has been working on some of the policies that the Biden administration is developing in response to some of the executive orders on environmental justice. Um, the Council on Environmental Quality, again, has first has its first ever EJ scorecard highlighting some of the executive agency's progress on Justice 40 commitments and um, to improve and other ways to improve federal, the federal government's approach to gathering and using data and science to address environmental justice. So um, there's so much happening at the federal level and it, 
it's all about keeping an eye on the price and getting the administration to actually deliver on all the benefits and investments that environmental justice communities deserve and need. So I know the flip side of that coin in, in, in working with agencies and pushing them is partnering with communities, and you guys have a strong focus on that. So I'm wondering if you can outline how the organization works to turn communities' priorities and ideas into policies, and what does that look like on the ground? Yeah, we are in constant communication with our community-based partners and coalitions to alert them about the things happening at the federal level. Oftentimes, you know, we see that because community-based partners aren't focused, are focused on the local and or regional issues, um, they don't have the capacity to engage in federal policies or programs that are having or will ha- soon have an impact on in their community. So, we serve as eyes and ears to let them know about the upcoming federal issues that are arising and um, just uh, and then collaborate with our partners on issues that they are prioritizing. Um, we provide technical and policy research and expertise to raise um, raise our collective concerns and their concerns with relevant federal agencies. And so, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of this is proactively assessing the challenges and opportunities within local, state, federal legislation and programs and produce, uh, we, we produce relevant analysis and original research, especially when state and national priorities are emerging. And can you talk about some of the victories you've all had, some things you're proud of? Definitely. Um, so this past year, um, like I mentioned, one of the biggest buckets of funding in the IRA is the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is approximately $27 billion going towards grants to finance clean energy and climate projects. And, and because it's such a big uh, bucket of funding, um, there's a lot of flexibility provided by the authorizing language in the law, and it could potentially have a huge opportunity to advance environmental justice, but only if it's implemented appropriately. And so just solutions, um, along with our partners, have been developing uh, best practices to address the concerns and to help ensure that environmental justice communities are meaningfully centered and empowered um, in the development of this program. And so along with uh, Just Solutions and 50 of our organizational endorsers, we called on applicants of, of this fund to publicly commit to adhering to the best practices for equity and governance to make sure that projects fund and prioritize direct benefits to low-income communities, require community engagement, and operate with transparency. So we actually have a, have had a couple of those applicants commit to the principle the principles we uh, we've outlined, and just hope to get even more. One of the other things that we've been working on is uh, partnering with community based organizations in Los Angeles to provide a, an analysis of the different Inflation Reduction Act programs and. Uh, bipartisan infrastructure programs that help uh, to help them identify uh, which programs they could apply to and leverage to support their projects and priorities in their community. And so um, it's, it's really about providing the the technical um, expertise and help to allow communities to uh, realize the the programs that they've been um, envisioning for their communities. Excellent. And you mentioned going to law school, um, wanting to see more women of color 
in the legal space, uh, for in the environmental legal space. And I know Just Solutions is a BIPOC-led organization, and diversity, um, let's be honest, hasn't always been a strong point for environmental organizations. I actually just spoke with Ebony Martin on the podcast, who is the first black woman to lead um, Greenpeace, maybe the first black woman to lead a legacy environmental organization, I think. So I'm wondering what this kind of work culture means to you and perhaps how it compares to other workplaces and programs that you've been a part of. Yeah, I think um, the work culture really has um, been one of the strongest selling points for me at Just Solutions. Um, I I think we we foster and we foster a feminist work culture, um, and so for us that means really valuing the health and well being of our of our staff. And I I feel really valued and and in community with um, uh, my fellow coworkers. And um, we are also a collective, which to to us, that means um, that the work is not just about what the individual is doing, what it's what one person is producing um, or elevating their personal power. But really accomplishments and recognitions are, um, you know, as part of our group and in general. So (laughs) that's I I find that. it, it just creates a different um, environment and, and sense of like um, responsibility and sense of generosity and support. Um, and I feel always uh, welcomed and <laughs> um, to, to the, to the work environment. Um, and we pride ourselves in, in practicing also a healthy work-life balance um, as well. And, um, I see that it's not just practice among staff, but really within our leadership as well. And it really, um, uh, you know, trickles down to <laughs> the ways that our staff feel um, like they can take breaks and sustain, you know, feel like there's not a lot of burnout. So I find that that's, um, you know, one of the best aspects of our work culture. Um, and I think that besides that, um, our, st- our staff come from and are rooted in in their lived experiences coming from environmental justice communities. And so I think it's something you don't often see in a lot of the big environmental organizations. Um, And it actually feels like it it not only influences, but our our work is much more rooted in in the lived experiences that we hold, but also that we know and and seek out in with our partners because we're always looking to engage with um those that are uh the the experts of their lived experiences so the not to go back to the example of the the mother at the meeting again but you said you know that that can be both energizing on one hand on the other hand hearing from people who are struggling can be overwhelming and i know environmental justice work just in general can be kind of weighty it can be it can be overwhelming so i'm wondering what you do to stay motivated and not get down about this work if you're not um if you're not always seeing the results you want to see fast enough yeah, and I and I think this goes back to your question about why law school. And I um, I think for me, law school just um, I want to go back there because I was like, law school really dispelled the fact that for me, um, or in general, that like the laws are actually solutions, right? Um, and I think having that realization early in my <laughs> in my legal career has been really helpful for me and keeping me. Um, motivated because I, I'm not going to turn to, um, 
you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, as as much as we should depend on them, we're not, that's not where the solutions are coming from. Um, and so for me, what really um, keeps me motivated is being rooted in the communities and working with community-based partners that are, are having much more creative solutions to our problems. Like I, you know, creating new policies, um, finding other laws and that are not environmental laws um, to kind of go and get um, affordable housing and like, you know, clean water and, you know, protection of our civil rights. I think there's so many other um, ways of um, building power, like I mentioned. Um, so um, it really, that, that really sustains me in knowing that we're not just looking at one solution very narrowly within the law, but it's, um, it's about finding any, any other place that we can to, to get a win. And what are you optimistic about on the environmental and climate justice front? I think what I'm very optimistic about on, on this front is, um, you know, I think the environmental justice movement has always been intersectional by nature, but um, really recently, I, I started to see more and more how we're connecting housing justice and gentrification and displacement of, fam- of families and communities and how like the fight against colonialism, imperialism and war um, are, are just getting much more connected with environmental, the environmental justice movement. And so for me, it gives me so much hope to see that we aren't afraid to name these issues as environmental justice issues and that there is all just by the day more and more popular education on social media on on different platforms like this podcast to to really elevate and con- make those connections because i think that's really what's going to move our our movement forward so before my last question and again i appreciate this time so much it's been so great to hear about you and your work. I have three rapid fire questions that are fun or hopefully fun. I don't know. And you can just answer with one word or a phrase. So first one is one place I'd love to vacation is. Um, I love, I am vacationing in Puerto Rico. Shout out to my partner. Um, such a, such a beautiful place uh, with good food and, and wonderful beaches. Excellent. Excellent. That is on my short list of places I want to go. <laughs> One of the best gifts I've ever gifts I've ever received is my outdoor herb garden. I'm trying Ooh. to do keep my do my best to upkeep it um, and hopefully not have them all die at me. <laughs> on me. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing is where you live, you can always try again because your seasons uh, I'm in uh, I'm in Michigan's <laughs> upper peninsula. So we have this little tiny window of growth, but um, out there you can just try again if you fail. Yeah. <laughs> um, and who has had the most positive influence on your life? Um, I shout out my older brother. Excellent. That is so great. I, I hope someday one of my sisters is on a podcast and <laughs> says the same thing, though I I don't know because my <laughs> most of my childhood and teenage years, I don't know if I was so cool. But um, well, <laughs> thank you so much for that. And, and my last question is, uh, what is the last book you read for fun? And you don't have to confine yourself to just a word or a phrase here. Yeah, um, I love, love, love uh, Z-Way's new book, Black Friend. Um, highly recommend 
Great. Well, Idel Mies, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you so much for taking time today. We will include a link to Just Solutions so listeners and readers can check this out. And have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Idel Mies. If you enjoy this podcast, visit agentsofchangeenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find and support us on X and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify or iTunes, where you can listen to this in all past episodes. We are here every two weeks. This podcast episode was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Email our team at agentsofchangeenej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks.